we are here today with Professor Campbell McLaughlin. And I'll start by saying it's a, it's a great honor to be able to interview you and all of us here at the Eminent Scholars Archive are grateful that you're taking the time to do this. Well, that's a pleasure. Um, it's, I still struggle with the idea of being described as an eminent scholar, but uh, from my side, it's of course been a delight to be here for a year in Cambridge amongst so many friends and with so much uh, intellectual stimulation. Oh, wonderful. I'd like to start by just briefly running through some of the highlights of your uh, rather, rather remarkable career. Uh, so you were born in 1960 in New Zealand. You served uh, a brief two years uh, in an undergrad program at the University of Canterbury before entering the LLB program at the Victoria University of Wellington uh, from 1981 to 1984. You graduated first in your class, received the Chapman Tripp Centenary Award and uh, some scholarships and a junior lectureship, if I'm correct. Uh, from there, I believe you enrolled in the um, PhD program at University College London. And somewhere around that time, did a, you earned a diploma cum laude at the Hague Academy of International Law and spent some time at the Legal Division of the Commonwealth Secretariat. Yes, that's all true. Uh, John, and sounds like that as though it was all a carefully designed plan, but at least at the time, it, it was just, it wasn't. It was a, a, a series of decisions. I think when you're young, you, you sort of follow your impulses to some extent. Um, Certainly, at the time, uh, as now, Victoria University of Wellington was very well known in international law terms, uh, both in public international law and, and private international law, and that was really an important part of my inspiration in going there, uh, which was well realised. And then when I'm, uh, came to, I came initially to the UK, following my then girlfriend, now wife, uh, Rona, um, and had a year working at the Commonwealth Secretariat informally, really. There was a remarkable New Zealander called Jeremy Pope, who was then the director of the legal division. And that was in the era of Sonny Ramphile, which was a very um, vibrant time for the work of the secretariat. And I'd been suggested to me by my professor of private international law, Tony Angelo, that I should enroll for the Hague Academy. At the time, and in New Zealand, I had no idea really what was involved, and in particular, no idea what was involved in sitting for the diploma. I thought that everybody enrolled for the diploma. I arrived in The Hague to discover that of the 350 students there, uh, about 330 of them were there essentially to attend the odd lecture and have a good time. And 20 had the self-induced misery of trying to prepare for an exam that it was almost impossible to prepare for since the jury was entitled to ask you any question that they wished to ask uh, before a public audience in the civil law style about any aspect of public or private international law. So uh, it has the reputation of being a rather fluky um, qualification, but uh, it's certainly the certificate on my wall which I feel the proudest of having uh, achieved because it's um, still a rather unusual thing. And of course, it started a lifelong um, relationship with the Hague Academy as well as a student initially and then subsequently uh, as a lecturer. Excellent. Uh, before we move forward, um, perhaps we could just just go back. Um, you were born in a Christchurch? Yes. Okay. And and. And, and what do you remember of your, of your family growing up? <laughs> well, I, um, so Christchurch in my childhood uh, had the reputation of being the most English of cities in New Zealand and perhaps the most English city outside uh, this country. 
in fact, that was more of a myth, perhaps, than a reality. Uh, but uh, it was certainly a very quiet and orderly existence, something which has sadly been shattered in uh, more recent times as a result of um, the earthquakes and, and the like. But my childhood was certainly a very um, peaceful childhood. My father was a, a solicitor in Christchurch. So he was obviously keen that I should study the law and had, I suppose, personally imagined that I might join the family firm and, and the like. But once I got the bit between my teeth in studying the law, and in particular got something of an idea of what it might be to engage in litigation as an advocate, I began to think about other possible ways of of using my legal studies. And I guess I always gravitated towards the international aspect, which certainly in those days was unusual, at least in New Zealand it was, it was unusual. Most people were very focused on commercial practice and focused domestically, and that was never my main driving force. Um, I gravitated naturally towards the international subjects in the degree and always was kind of looking a bit beyond the horizon, uh, which isn't to say that, uh, I mean, I, I still retain sole New Zealand nationality and, and of which I'm, of course, greatly proud. You attended um, Christchurch Boys High School. Yes. <laughs> uh, was, it, was, was, that a, was that a private school? Was that model? No, absolutely the, no? not. It is. It was absolutely not a private school. The, uh, the there is a school in Christchurch which is very much modelled about after the so-called public schools of this country called Christ College. Christchurch Boys High School, on the contrary, was established as a state boys school, a little bit along the model of the, I suppose, of the grammar schools right. that used to exist in this country. Um, but with the difference that it really did have to take every boy in the zone. So it had a very strong academic reputation, but also had to cater for all comers. And uh, personally, I am a great admirer of, I think, what a school can achieve if it has to take every pupil uh, and still manages to achieve very well academically. That's in a way more admirable than merely to select the brightest children first and then work with them. So when we returned to New Zealand many decades later, I was very keen to give my own boys the same, a similar experience at Wellington College, which is the equivalent school in Wellington. Right. Mm. Excellent. So what was the program you were enrolled in at, at Canterbury? Well, at Canterbury, so the way the New Zealand law degree works, it, all students start with a sort of an intermediate year where they do a variety of usually art subjects and then just one um, introductory law subject. Uh -huh. And then you're admitted into law school proper depending upon the aggregate of your results in that first year program so so that was that was what I did it was my hometown I had no particular reason to go elsewhere and then I had one year starting with uh, the the compulsory core subjects also at Canterbury until I decided that it was really time to spread my wings and then actually as now one of the advantages of the New Zealand system is that it is a nationally organized system and the consequence is that it's relatively easy assuming you have the marks and the like to transfer from from one university to another if you um, if you wish to do so um, right. and there was certainly 
I mean, for me, I don't. I, I have great memories of my time at Canterbury, and things have changed an awful lot since I was there. But certainly, when I was being educated, there were some very famous names at Victoria. Professor Quentin Baxter, who'd been a member of the International Law Commission. Um, Professor Ken Keith, of course, went on to be a judge at the International Court. Professor Tony Angelo, who's a great comparative and private international lawyer. So these these were people who, because of my interests, were quite a draw. Mm -hmm. And um, so you won the the, uh, the Chapman Tripp Centenary Award. Uh, you uh, won a senior scholarship and the Commonwealth Scholarship and a junior lectureship, which mm -hmm. I'm guessing is quite unusual for someone with just an LLB. <laughs> well... I don't want to overstate that. I mean, the, the, at that stage, the faculty had a really very nice program, which was to try to keep a, a few of the, the best students within the academy with the view that they would then go on and do further study abroad, but um, would spend maybe a couple of years uh, in a junior capacity in the faculty. Right. Uh, so I personally think that's a terrific way of introducing people to the possibility of academic life as opposed to going straight into practice. Um, and that's what I did. So far as the rest of the awards are concerned, it's uh, very nice of you to mention them, John. I, I um, The most significant thing, of course, uh, was the award of a Commonwealth Scholarship. I mean, in the 80s, that was the most fabulous program. Of course, it was quite a comprehensive program across the Commonwealth, which was a very well-funded program, which enabled able students to go and uh, do postgraduate study in other Commonwealth countries. Um, and that was what enabled me to come here. And I mean, there are other such programs, but nothing quite as comprehensive as the Commonwealth uh, still exists today. There is, of course, just continuing that thread. There is a bit of a Commonwealth twist to my initial engagement with the law, as I mentioned earlier, because I also ended up spending this year working for the Commonwealth Secretariat and doing quite a lot of research for them on issues of sort of Commonwealth cooperation, which gave me a rather particular window into international negotiations more generally. Yeah. Right. Hmm. Um, I'm going to mention one other little bit in relation to that, which is somewhat unusually, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm running forward here a bit, but the topic that I then picked for my PhD when I did take it up was to do with the relationship between um, customary law of indigenous peoples in the Pacific and introduced state law. It was, if you like, the beginning of my ongoing fascination with how different normative systems interact, really. And one consequence of that, and one consequence of also being uh, at the Commonwealth Secretariat at the time, was that I was briefly, at the time of the first Fiji coup, I think 1985, mm -hmm. um, pretty much the only person in London who had apart from perhaps from the High Commissioner, who'd ever, ever even read the Fiji Constitution, let alone had a view. So I had a very early and rare for me exposure of uh, being at the centre of media interest, um, mm. since I was the only person who was available to be interviewed 
on the significance of the coup and its relationship to the constitution and the like. So, so you're interviewed, uh, for example, by the BBC? And- yes, by, uh, by the BBC, World Service, by uh, Jon Snow on Channel 4. You know, it's the, the, that's how the way the news media works. It, it, if there's a news story, then for two days it's all on. Um, but it's not something I made a practice of in my in my life, really. But uh, it was just another extension of the um, interest in, in particular, the newly independent Commonwealth states. Right, yeah. and, and you were just kind of in the right place at the right time. I guess so, with a very obscure <laughs> kind of knowledge. That's that. That's right. But you know, of large significance because uh, now that I look back on that period, I sort of realise that you know that was not so long after the whole period of decolonization in which a whole bunch of countries had emerged into independence, including in the Pacific, which is a much less written about story than, say, in Africa, mm-hmm. with conscious attempts to shape their own autochthonous uh, constitutions, and also in which the Commonwealth itself, who was then led by the very ebullient Sunny Ramphile, um, was quite a force to be reckoned with. It was the time of the eminent persons group visit to South Africa, um, the stand against apartheid, and also quite a lot of tangible Commonwealth cooperation on less um, uh, perhaps attention-grabbing matters, uh, but very important practical matters like mutual cooperation in criminal matters and that right. kind of thing, which I as a set, uh, not quite as a fly on the wall, but certainly as a very, very junior assistant. Right. Yeah. So... You know, having having completed the PhD, mm. you then moved to the city of London and uh, became a solicitor. Yes, I did. Now, and that was also an unusual sideways move for me in a way. Maybe my whole career is uh, an example of the Shakespearean aphorism by in directions, find directions out. So I thought that... Um, At the time I finished my PhD, I could, and indeed was offered, an academic position. But I thought that if I didn't try my hand at practice at that point, I probably never would. And I'd always wonder what it would be like. So I felt that at that stage I had an opportunity. And I went about that in a very idiosyncratic way as well, which would probably these days never be possible, Um, which was that I simply went and saw Lawrence Collins, as he then was, uh, who was then a partner in Herbert Smith, and asked him for a job. And he said, well, I'd better get you interviewed by my some of my fellow partners, et cetera, et cetera. So I went through that whole process. But in the end, they took a chance on me, for which I was, of course, um, very grateful. So I plunged from the relative isolation of writing a PhD, which, as you know, can be a very solo process and perhaps particularly was in those days when far fewer people in commonwealth countries tended to write phds in law uh, into the intense cauldron of uh, the city's greatest litigation department which had a fierce reputation for fighting its clients corners but into a group which had a very particular reputation It was a reputation built upon the sort of lineal inheritance of Dr. F.A. Mann, the great mid-century international lawyer who had had the good sense to immigrate from Germany in the early 30s and had built a 
formidable reputation in this country, both as a practitioner, as a solicitor, and also academically, because by that stage, but you know, even even um, from a very early stage, he'd written you know the legal aspect of money, and then his famous articles on the act of state doctrine and so forth. So if a man had merged his firm with Herbert Smith and the group that I joined turned out to be essentially that group. If a man was still coming into the office every day until he passed away about three years after I joined the firm, Lawrence had come to Herbert Smith to work for F.A. Man and then with him. And the consequence of all of that was really twofold. Firstly, that there was a strong appreciation of the value of academic thought in the law, so long as one also delivered the goods in practice. But that was very much encouraged. It was very much encouraged to, to write and, and, and participate. But secondly, the focus of that group's work was very much on international work. Now, what does that mean in practice? Uh, well, in the case of Herbert Smith, it meant a combination of both large-scale private international litigation, that is to say cross-border cases involving mainly corporations but also individuals, but also quite a lot of work uh, involving sovereign states or state-owned enterprises um, and arbitrations. So the combination of the fascinating nature of the work and the fact that it was encouraged to stay involved at an intellectual level as well, um, made it really a very fascinating place to be. And I was very, very happy there. And you stayed there from 1988. So, so 1992, I'm assuming, did you do a standard five-year qualification or did you get an abridgment or was it three years? How, how did you actually get a license as a solicitor? <laughs> do you remember that? <laughs> in my, yes, in my day, the cross-qualification requirements from New Zealand were really very uh, modest. You just had to practice as a clerk, so-called, in other words, under supervision for three years, uh, and sit a paper in accounts. And fortunately, my double-entry bookkeeping, never my strong suit, but it did crucially balance on the day of the examination. Um, so I... I Requalified as an English solicitor, and then was made a partner the following year. And it was unusual to make partner that quickly, wasn't it? Uh... Uh, yes, I mean, the, the, it was a time of great expansion in city practice. Of course, the late eighties, post Big Bang, and all the rest of it, and things also were less regimented than perhaps they are today in terms of career progression. But I think it's, it's fair to say it was still um, re relatively unusual. Right. Uh, and as a solicitor, you were chair of the International Bar Association's uh, Committee on... Um, International Litigation. International litigation. Yes. Yeah. yeah, so that that was fun. And that was another thing which, to its credit, the firm very much encouraged. So they sort of threw me into both the work with the International Law Association International Litigation Committee, which actually Lawrence originally proposed me to be rapporteur of that committee. And then uh, the then head of department, a wonderful man called Charles Plant, 
decided that the firm should get much more actively involved in the international litigation the committee of the IBA, which of course is much more of a practitioner body. But there again too, I think there was a sort of recognition, firstly, that litigation, the practice of litigation had internationalized or was in the process of internationalizing, and therefore that connections with lawyers practicing in other parts of the world and exchange of information about how it was done was going to be important. And a recognition that pursuing that through the IBA could be in the firm's interests as well as interesting. So I started by doing the hard yards, as it were, with a colleague, um, Julian Wilson, lovely chap, who then subsequently went to the bar here, you know, creating a newsletter for them and the like, and then just worked my way up. Um, but that was a lot of fun. And we did always make sure that that committee did quite a bit of what I would call substantive work on the practice of international litigation and wasn't just a talking shop and an opportunity to have a nice glass of wine in various uh, nice locations around the world. And certainly the ILA committee was a highly substantive enterprise. Um, I mean, those, those ILA committees are very valuable, uh, I think, as a... Um, way of harnessing or creating new ideas through communities of scholars in particular areas. But there was some special chemistry there in the ILA committee that uh, enabled us to make really quite a lot of progress. Um, I'd give credit to Peter Nye, the late Peter Nye, who was a great Australian private international lawyer, who was the chair. Um, but also the collection of people that we had on that committee was truly remarkable. And if I try and recall all of them, I'm going to miss some of them out. But many of them I now know either were at the time or have gone on to really make very significant contributions, in, particularly in private international law. So Peter Truboff in Washington, uh, Peter Schlosser in Munich, my friend Patrick Kinch in Luxembourg, Catherine Cassetjean in Paris. I mean, the, the, this was a wonderful group of people. But you can bring a wonderful group of scholars together, and it doesn't necessarily mean that they'll be able to agree on anything. In fact, it might increase the possibility that they won't agree on anything. But I think partly under the genial chairmanship of Peter Nye, and partly because we did establish, and I suppose I can take some of the credit here, a, a reasonably effective modus operandi uh, early on with that committee. We, we managed to do quite a lot of useful work, some of which had direct application, some of which, and this is the curious thing about academic life, you know, you put stuff out there and you don't know what impact it's going to have, and then years, even decades later, will be picked up. So, for example, the work that we did on lease pendants on parallel proceedings in international litigation. At the time, it was picked up and put in a draft Hague Convention, which went nowhere because the states couldn't agree on many of the other principles um, of international jurisdiction. They did, however, agree on what should be done about parallel proceedings based on the, the work that we'd done. And now, I guess, 
two decades later, or more than two decades later, that bit of the project has again reignited and has been pursued in the Hague Conference. So, of the two committees that I was involved in during that period in practice, I think from a, an academic point of view, the ILA committee was possibly the more significant. Right. But saying that the IBA committee gave me many friends in the field and, and gave me, which is which more generally practice gave me, which is just an insight into the way things actually work. Mm. And I've tried constantly through my scholarship and teaching to plow those insights back in because I think in the end, the law is not a mere abstraction. It is the way we organize human life and in this context having an insight into how the process of international litigation actually works is is I think a useful thing. Mm. So you were with um, Herbert Smith and and engaging with these international law committees um, until um, uh, 19 uh, sorry 2003 yeah uh, and then you abruptly turned a tail uh, went back to New Zealand and yeah. became an academic. Yes. <laughs> Was that another kind of yeah, that was another surprising move. It was very surprising, I think, to my partners and my team at, at Herbert Smith. It was probably just at the point where, had I stayed a partner, I could have made serious money. And the, in terms of practice, things uh, were really going very well. Lots of work and lots of very, very interesting work. Um, so... The move back to New Zealand was, when we announced it, I think most of our friends and colleagues had long ago dismissed our occasional references to, oh, oh, when we go back to New Zealand, as being in the category of next year in Jerusalem, which is to say, well, something which the expat likes to say, but is never actually going to happen. But at the time we moved back, uh, my eldest daughter was 12, and we had four kids, now five. And so I think at some rather deep level, we thought we've really got to give them the experience that we had of a New Zealand upbringing. Um, Whether they thank us for that subsequently, I don't know, you'd have to ask them. But that was what we felt was the right thing to do. And we thought, well, if we don't do it now, it'll be too late because my daughter would be starting high school and um, cross a Rubicon, essentially. So it was a family decision uh, that was the primary motivator, Not certainly not any dissatisfaction with London practice. But when I started to think about it more deeply, think about the decision, I realised that if I tried hard enough, I suppose, I I had the opportunity in my early 40s to have a whole second career as an academic which could be very rewarding and which, if I left it to the next decade, probably wouldn't be possible or almost certainly wouldn't be possible. And that conversely, being an academic was something which I could do in uh, New Zealand and still maintain all my international ties <clears throat> in a way that would be more difficult if I'd stayed in practice in New Zealand, um, just because of the, it's a small country, it's a wonderful country, but it's a small country, 
uh, somewhat far from major centres of commerce and the like. So there was a very positive reason then. Um, and, and I think also that I'd always maintained this academic engagement. I'd carried on writing articles. I'd published one small book, but nothing really significant. I mean, no, nothing significant book-wise. And I thought, well, this is an opportunity to sort of take that knowledge and experience and try and actually make something of it academically. So there was a very positive reason for choosing the academic route. And I was very fortunate that at the time we were deciding to go back, there was a vacant chair at Victoria and um, they were prepared to take a chance on me. And uh, so that was the opportunity that we took up. Excellent. And that uh, put you on the pathway to come here, didn't it? It's, uh, um, so you were uh, Associate Dean very early on yeah. in your tenure there. Um, you were, um, you became a member of the International Chamber of Commerce uh, Court of Arbitration while yeah. you were there. Um, and you were elected to the American Law Institute as an international advisor to the uh, Fourth Restatement of Foreign Relations Law. Yeah. Yeah, so all those things. <clears throat> uh, so firstly, I want to pay tribute to... So all my life, I have benefited from some wonderful encouragement from mentors. And I think when you look at many people who have had some success in their chosen field, encouragement from mentors is a very important thing. And in turn, I've tried to play that same role myself, both when I was formally in practice with my assistants and then with graduating students and the like as a university teacher. And I certainly received a lot of uh, encouragement when I came back to New Zealand, for which I'm uh, very grateful. So for example, the election to the American Law Institute uh, was on the proposal of Lord Cook of Thorndon, who ah. uh, had been the president of the New Zealand Court of Appeal and, uh, of course, also has a very close ties with this city and university. In fact, his full title was Lord Cook of Thorndon and Cambridge uh, in the House of Lords. Um, so he proposed me for that. And it, it's a, it was a small but really very high quality community of people interested in international law in Wellington, which um, very much supported me as I was making the move into academic life. Right. And yet you kept a foot firmly in practice. You, uh... Well, yes, sort of. I mean, um, practice sort of followed me around, I think. So, so that was and... just another accident. It just kind of worked <laughs> out that way. Not quite. So uh, another person who encouraged me when I came back was Sir David Williams, as he now is, who was, and he's only just retired now, but he was throughout his later career, plainly the leading international arbitrator in New Zealand by some margin, but also one of the world's top arbitrators. So David also saw the opportunity of me coming back. He proposed me to the New Zealand National Group beyond the ICC Court of Arbitration, invited me to be an associate member of the, the set of chambers in Auckland that he was then setting up, Bankside. 
but the reality, John, is that in the early years of going back, I really had my hands full getting my arms around the teaching job, mm. actually. And um, also, you know, we had a still very young family. We were building a house, you know, all those things. And plus, I needed to build my academic reputation. Now, I did that partly using, uh, again, by happenstance, with my existing connections. So, um, firstly, Lawrence Collins asked me to be a specialist editor of Dicey, uh, Dicey and Morris on the Conflict of Laws, Dicey, Morris and Collins, as it now is. Um, and then one of my former assistants, who had then become a partner at Herbert Smith, who's now at Linklater's Matthew Weininger, proposed to me that we should jointly with another former assistant now partner in an Italian law firm, Larry Shaw, write a book about investment arbitration. Now, incredible as it may seem today, the idea of writing a whole book about the substantive principles applicable to investment arbitration in 2005 was regarded as a rather exotic idea. There wasn't one. Wow. <laughs> and um, there was almost no secondary literature. There was one book which had been written by Margareta Stevens and a colleague at the World Bank in the mid-90s, but they had almost no case law to go on. So that was a challenging assignment to write a, a book on essentially a greenfield site with only the sort of daunting eminence grise, as it were, of the sort of relatively short sections in Oppenheim and the like on the general principles, but very little on how they should actually be applied. But of course, the result of that was that we had the advantage of being the first mover advantage. Um, that book was the first modern book in the, on the subject. Um, fortunately, it was kindly received and then relied upon. But even on its own, that wouldn't have amounted to much um, on the practice side had it not been that, um, again, the happenstance of the passing, sad passing of Lord Cook, left a vacancy on the list of New Zealand nominations for the uh, exit for the International Centre for the Settlement of Investment Disputes. And so I plucked up my courage and asked the then uh, Chief Justice of New Zealand, Dame Sean Elias, who's also a wonderful person, whether she would consider nominating me, and she kindly supported that candidacy. And that in turn coincided with an increasing view then held by the acting Secretary General of the Exit Secretariat, Azib Siade, that the pool of available arbitrators should be expanded, that it all become a bit incestuous, the same people were being appointed, and in particular the same people were being appointed to review arbitral decisions under the um, ad hoc procedure for review as we're deciding the underlying cases. So he gave me an opportunity to do that, which of course was very interesting. And also I learned a lot because the first people I ended up sitting with in those early cases were themselves extraordinarily experienced uh, international lawyers, such as um, Steve Schwabel, Judge Schwabel, formerly a judge of the International Court, 
and Judge Peter Tomko, of, who was then president of the International Court. So I learned from some real um, masters as to how to run those uh, those cases and and uh, um, developed an appreciation of what was involved. So I had the combination, I guess, of the academic overview of the field as a result of writing the book and then the practical experience. And fortunately, that sort of practical experience proved to be reasonably compatible with the day job because at least as counsel, you have to appear when you're told to appear, but at least as arbitrator, you have more control over your diary and can fit in hearings during university vacations and the like, and can also moderate the appointments that one takes on, because I've never seen this as a volume business. It's about trying to make a really well-considered contribution where, where one can. Right. Mm. Excellent. Um, and you served... Um, I mean, how did you get appointed Queen's Counsel? That was in 2007. That was, uh, incidentally, the same year you were a visiting fellow here at the Louderpack Center. Yeah. I don't think those two things were related. <clears throat> They're unrelated, I would assume. <laughs> um, so that... Um, Although it, it kind of does speak to the whole two halves, the professional and the academic. Academic, that's They're right. Kind of working both, both sides of that. That's right. And so, again, I think... One doesn't know in the New Zealand system, you don't apply, you are simply, or maybe you do now, but at least in those days it was a, you, were, you were simply nominated. Um, and I think I owe that appointment, however, principally to Dame Shan as Chief Justice. Yeah. Um, in a very nice recognition of the fact that, or appreciation of the value of the scholar practitioner um, is a model which, in, a, in many ways, just making the link for a moment with the Lauderpark Centre, is embodied in the centre and which I think has been an extraordinarily important model also in the Cambridge approach to international law. People keep saying that it's, you know, its days are over, but I to differ I think it's still very 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 important and valuable for students as, as well as for the insights that, that it can bring that the practice of international law can 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 bring to scholarship um, so there was a recognition of that in New Zealand which is significant and, and there again I realize I'm mentioning lots of other people's names who've influenced my life but the precedent in New Zealand was a wonderful man called George Barton, Dr. George Barton QC, who was the first barrister I ever worked for. And he had been Dean of the Law Faculty and then gone into private practice. But that, so there was a New Zealand precedent uh, there. Um, but of course, here in, in Cambridge, both Ali Lauterpacht and my, and my dear friend, um, James Crawford, um, very much embodied that at a level much superior to that which I which I could ever aspire. Right. Mm. Um, and you worked for the New Zealand Law Foundation. Uh, you were an international research fellow. Mm. Well, that's, that was an award. So that... Uh, actually, I've relatively rarely applied in the modern fashion for, you know, research grants, partly because 
philosophically, I think the best work that one can do as a legal scholar is mainly about sitting locked away in your room doing your own work. And I, I'm not sure that the scientific model, which is really posited on the need to have a lab with dozens of assistants and all the rest of it, actually transfers that well. But at that point, what was that, 2011, I, having written the investment book, I really wanted to turn my attention to a completely different topic, which I had often spoken about wanting to write on, which I called foreign relations law, which is all concerned essentially with the relationship between constitutional law and international law in the exercise of the foreign relations power. Now, that is a topic that I was always going to want to write about. It, it was developed in this country par excellence by F.A. Mann himself, and I'd always been interested in it. In fact, when I decided to become an academic, I remember sitting on that circular uh, window bench right there yeah, yeah. with the wonderful Finola O'Sullivan, then law editor of um, Cambridge University Press. And she said to me, well, what do you really want to write about? And I said, all of this stuff. And at, the, at that point, I couldn't even really give a name to it. But undeterred by that, um, she came forward with a draft contract anyway. So I'd been sitting on this draft contract by that point for an embarrassingly long time and not delivered on it. And I thought the only way I'm going to be able to do this is if I take some significant time out of teaching and get, in that case, get some real research assistance. Because my idea was to try to draw together the practice from not only the UK, but also Canada, Australia and New Zealand. Um, so that was really a quite a large scale amount of material to mm. collect and systematize before trying to think about it. And then I thought I really need some time away because the big problem with that area had always been that it apparently lacked any kind of sort of logical coherence or structure. There were a bunch of rather obscurantist doctrines, you know, the act of state doctrine, the one voice principle, etc., etc. But nobody really knew how it all fitted together. And part of the reason for that, which is why I was naturally drawn to it, is because it fell between not two, but three stools. So constitutional public law on the one hand, public international law on the other, and then the third stool being private international law, because a lot of these cases arose in the context of foreign states, the foreign act of state doctrine, doctrine of state immunity, recognition of states, and all law works through um, large-scale categorization. We couldn't we couldn't do our job without without it. But the risk of that is that we miss seeing the really important stuff that's going on in between, and that was absolutely the case with foreign relations law. For international lawyers, this was regarded as a bit of an inconvenient footnote because, really, public international lawyers, understandably enough, are concerned with the international plane and not its domestic application to the same extent. And anyway, once one starts looking at the domestic application, it looks very messy. You know, it's not uh, international law in its pure form. For constitutional lawyers, this was all a somewhat uncertain domain outside their main uh, preoccupations. And of course, for the private international lawyers, this was sitting at that very uncomfortable interface with public law, which again, 
from dicey onwards, they'd erected some very severe barriers, the rule against the enforcement of foreign public law and the like. So trying to conceptualize what that might involve was in itself um, a very uh, challenging exercise. And um, so I was very, very grateful for the support of the New Zealand Law Foundation, which enabled me to do two things. One, take up a visiting fellowship at All Souls in Oxford, which is a remarkable place, but was certainly a remarkable place to start this project, um, where I had many very valuable discussions. Um, and secondly, to hire a full-time junior research fellow, who herself a remarkable scholar who wrote her own PhD on a completely different subject at the same time and went on to become a a full-time academic herself, Maria Hook. So those two things finally enabled me to write that book, which is still, from my perspective, that's still my most sort of significant piece of work. Um, At the time I wrote it, though, I couldn't have really appreciated, couldn't have known, just how important that whole area would become. But certainly in this country, the result of the sort of fallout from Iraq and Afghanistan, followed by Brexit, just has produced a welter of cases uh, in this country and also directed political attention to the significance of the field in a way that one couldn't have previously anticipated. So that's proved to be a, a really a fascinating second area of focus in my work. And I mean, when I looked back over some of your publications mm. rather strategically, it, it seems to me that this, this notion that you can't really make these nice hard compartmentalized lines between mm. international and national jurisdiction, mm. it, it seems to me like a, a running theme, you know, that, that, that you've addressed this much earlier with particularly you were doing interlocutory um, mm. international, really the transnational effective interlocutory motions mm. earlier your career and it seems to me to be a part of the same problem yes that, you know that you you can't you can't draw hard lines you have to parse the lines in ways that that, that lead to to a reasonable settlement for the disputants yes. regardless of you know these these silly doctrines that you know were, were, were <laughs> well let, let's face it in, in the in the 1900s they articulated some very strong li- uh, jurisdictional lines that that, that really have, have um, in, in so many different ways uh, proved to be unworkable. Yeah, I think you're right, John. So um, firstly, one thing is that I became aware when I did the historical research for foreign relations law that there really was a very significant hardening of doctrinal lines uh, in the common law, in particular in the last quarter of the 19th century. And that prior to that, and in particular in the 18th century, when Britain was opening up to the world, not always so benignly, but uh, nevertheless engaging in the time of Lord Mansfield and the like, there was much more flexibility. Um, The Victorians hardened those lines and we are still by and large working with their thought processes. They rule us from the grave, whether we like it or not. Now, that's not to say that I think that all of these distinctions can be just kind of swept away in some kind of general blancmange of transnational law. I've been thinking about this quite a lot recently because, as you know, my next 
challenge after I complete the manuscript of the book I'm working on at the moment, which we can perhaps talk about shortly. My next challenge is the general course of the Hague Academy in January of next year, and that will be on the interface, it's called on the interface between public and private international law. Mm -hmm. um, so that will be an attempt to bring together a lot of my thinking across all of these issues. But my point there is not so much that you can just mix all this up in some kind of booyah base of doctrines, but that, because I do think, you know, disaggregation is good, working out really precisely what the specific problems in particular areas are and what the solutions that are needed for those problems is, is what the law is about. But it is very, very important not to get blinded by the big silos mm. into realising that a lot of the most interesting stuff is actually what's going on at the edge between those. And that's what tends not to be investigated, and that's the world we're living in, actually. Mm. Um, I mean, uh, lawyers' categories are lawyers' categories. They're not necessarily the categories of the rest of the world. And it's up to us to make sure that what we do kind of coheres with what's going on out there. Mm. Mm. So, um, uh, just so we don't uh, drag this on forever, yes. um, <laughs> let, let's let's bring us uh, we're, we're to the present here. Uh, you've spent the last year here at Cambridge, and, and um, I wonder if uh, you have any any fond memories of being at the Squire, being at your college. Which I'll refresh my memory. Which college have you taught? Trinity to? Hall. Trinity Hall. Yeah, <clears throat> it's been a terrific experience. Of course, I had to. Be, wait very patiently. In fact, the offer came some years ago, and then just when I was about to accept it, the pandemic, uh, oh to take it up rather, the pandemic struck. So I should have been here in 2020, uh, but very kindly the faculty kept the place open for me, and so much better to have waited in hindsight because this year has been the first year of normal transmission, really, in the sense of the faculty and students and everybody being here in person and all activities on the go. So that's been fantastic. I've tried to make a reasonably broadly based contribution, probably did more teaching than would normally be expected, but that was self-induced. Uh, I taught a whole course on international law as a legal system, which is really based on the manuscript of my current book nearly completed on the principle of systemic integration which itself is derived from well the idea was to look again at work that I did at the request of the International Law Commission study group on fragmentation back in um, 2005 and see what had happened to that idea and the answer to that of course is rather a lot so it turned into a bigger project but it, I think I still think an, an important one because it, in, in an era in which public international law is is so much attacked and seemingly in retrenchment understanding the glue that makes it stick together is actually rather important both from a practical point of view of solving real life international law problems but on a larger level for understanding what it is that international law actually contributes to creating a peaceful international society or uh, at least a less fragmented international society than the newspapers would have us believe. So I've did the course, I've taught, gave some lectures to the undergraduates, I've given a seminar for the PhD students and then I've given a series of public lectures including reviving the Cambridge tradition of 
the good heart professor giving um, a public lecture, which uh, was a lot of fun to do. Mm-hmm. So in terms of personal uh, pleasures of being here, they've been manifold. Firstly, I want to pay tribute in particular to the wonderful support at the Squire from the librarians uh, and the IT team. Um, between them, they've just given me incredible assistance. No research query was too obscure for them to be prepared to take it up. And of course, the pleasure of being back in a library with physical books, including really anything or almost anything that one could possibly want to look at in the international law field has been very great. But also, I've loved being able to be back here in the Lauterpacht Centre um, with its wonderful series of Friday seminars, one of which I gave, but I've been greatly enriched by listening to everybody else's. This itself is a very precious institution, globally unique, I think. But the association with Trinity Hall has been a particular pleasure and an almost unexpected one in the sense that I had no prior association myself with Trinity Hall. My friend, Professor Lauren Bartels, trade lawyer, was kind enough to propose me as a visiting fellow there. And when I looked at the list of previous Goodhart Fellows, I saw that there hadn't been, that's not tied to a college, the, 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 yes. the, the Goodhart Professorship. Uh, and Goodhart Professors had been attached to every which college, but there hadn't been a Trinity Hall Goodhart Professor since Otto Kahn-Freund in 1975, just two years after the professorship was established. Yes, um, that's and, a very prominent name, yes. Yeah, so Otto Kahn-Freund, nice name for me because he too was another one of those amazing Jewish emigres that did so much to enliven English legal academic life in the mid-century period. He was a great friend, actually, of F.A. Manns, even though they disagreed on many social issues. They, they, were, they, they respected each other greatly and were cl- close personal friends. And yet, Goodhart himself had been an honorary fellow of Trinity Hall. And, of course, it is known as a college that was founded by Bishop Bateman in 1350 of, for and by lawyers. But it's really been the most welcoming community of, of scholars. And uh, I've participated very actively in the life of the college I guess as a visitor, you get all the fun stuff with none of the burdens. Um, so, um, you know, I've enjoyed many very fine dinners and good company and also enjoyed chapel and the college choir. I've spoken to the students through the, the, the College Law Student Society uh, and just done my, my best to get to know other fellows. I think that the advantage that Trinity Hall has is that Although it's a very old college, it's a bit smaller, and therefore, as a visitor, it's uh, easy easier to get to know most of the fellowship during the course of your, your time. Um, mm. So that's been a pleasure. Provides more of a community when it's smaller, right? It does, yeah, absolutely. So um, before we uh, get on to closing matters, is, is there anything else that's important to you that you, you might want to, to discuss? <laughs> so the year has had a particularly wonderful close for me in an unexpected way in that during the course of the year one of the faculty's small number of statutory uh, chairs was advertised uh, the 1973 chair in law 
And the faculty had taken a strategic decision that uh, the new holder of that chair should specialise in particular in either private international law and or international commercial arbitration. So I received some encouragement from a number of colleagues to consider applying and eventually did so and I'm very pleased to be able to report that the Board of Electors decided to appoint me. So I will be back with the specific agreement to offer a wholly new course on the master's degree on the process of international dispute resolution broadly conceived to include both private international litigation, arbitration and public international litigation, the the bloodline or the red line that will the red thread that will link the course being a focus on the procedure of the way in which international disputes are handled and resolved. There's some real precedent for this in this uh, university, a, a remarkable book written back in 1999 by the late John Collier, who was a great private international lawyer, and uh, Vaughan Lowe, a uh, public international lawyer, of which there hasn't been a subsequent edition, sadly. So I hope to take that and work with it in my, my own way. So very excited to have the opportunity to return here in the autumn of 2024 and to make a more permanent contribution to this, the greatest of the great world universities. Wow, that is amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. And uh, I'd like to thank you, uh, Professor, for taking the time to, to, to share all of this information about yourself with us. And uh, um, this concludes the interview. Thank you very kindly. Thank you.